My identity rests firmly and happily on one fact. I am my mother's daughter. Am I on here? It's hard to believe that that is the end of an Adam Sandler movie, right? Um, one Adam Sandler movie that I'm um, mildly not embarrassed to say I've seen. Um, it is a, a movie that actually makes you think, which Happy Gilmore and Waterboy do not. Um, but I, I saw that, and that, that, that final scene made the whole movie for me. Um, and if you haven't seen it, it's, it's Spanglish, like Spanish and English put together, Spanglish. And, um, and, and the, the intriguing thing about the storyline is here's the girl. I mean, she was the center attention. And um, she's living in a world where her mother doesn't have much, and the white family she lives with has a lot. Her mother speaks only Spanish, and the people that she's living with speak English. She's between two worlds, and they're pulling her apart. And so she goes through this identity crisis of who am I? And you heard it a little bit in the dialogue of, of, um, about facing that basic question of life so young. And the question was, who am I? And as the movie resolves itself, she comes to the conclusion of who she is. And she, she decidedly chooses her mother as the basis of her identity. More importantly, that she is her mother's daughter. I love the final line. And actually, there's a whole lot in that, that, that scene that you could preach sermons on. Like, no space between us. That would be one, I'd say. Or to be like the mother. You don't want to be like me. Another one. But the last statement when she says um, that my identity rests. Identity is who you believe yourself to be. My identity rests firmly and gladly in one fact, that I am my mother's daughter. I was almost in tears when I got to that part at the end of the movie. Like, that was awesome. Of course, I translate everything into biblical categories um, as I'm going to with that quote. That whole question of of who am I? Who are you? Who do you believe yourself to be? When you kind of get outside of yourself and you look at who you are and try to define yourself, what do you see? That's what some would call a a self-image. That is how you see yourself, what you believe yourself to be. Some people might think that what you believe about yourself or who you see yourself to be is is, um, frivolous, like, you know, gazing at your navel or something. Um, But it's not. And I think any um, amount of time given to reflect on your own life, you'll realize that that is a massively important question to answer for us. Uh, Because how you view and what you believe about yourself, who you are, what you believe you are, um, will impact you in either positive or negative ways. I know for me, you know, I saw myself as a young boy as the redhead, freckle-faced, hyperactive kid who couldn't pay attention to the school teacher, and therefore ended up getting pretty horrible grades. And as a result of that, I formed uh, a conclusion about myself as a young young boy and an adolescent, a, 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 a self-image that was a distorted reality. And I'll tell you, um, that distorted view of myself has actually probably taken decades for me to overcome. That self-image at that point had a negative effect on me. And my guess is, if you looked in your past, you can remember things that people told you or you thought about yourself, which you recognized later were untrue, but how they held you down. Because it, in many respects, how you see yourself defines you. A number of years ago, someone gave me a book uh, by one of my 
This is confirmed, by the way, um, in, a, in a book that I read, someone handed me, like I said, um, a, written by a theologian that I respect. He wrote one of the standard works on the Imago Dei, or the image of God, that we had to read in seminary. His, uh, his name is Anthony Hokema, and he, he wrote this little, profound little book, and it, I'd encourage you to read it, but it's, it's entitled, uh, The Christian Looks at Himself. The Christian Looks at Himself. And one of the things that he says is this. He says, it will be generally granted, I believe, that what someone thinks of himself has much to do with the kind of life he will live. A person who sees himself as inferior to others will probably do inferior work, whereas a person who believes himself to be more capable than others will probably do better work. A man tends to live up to his self-image. That last statement, a man tends to live up to what he believes himself to be. I, I hope I remember to come back to that at the very end of this message, that a man or a woman tends to live up to his self-image. Now, I, I'm going to stop here and just say that I, I think some of you are probably thinking, has, has Dan gone off his rocker? Or are, are we talking about um, psychological mumbo-jumbo, all this uh, you know, self-image stuff? And the answer is, is, is no. Um, I don't believe so. Long before there was ever a discipline of modern psychology, um, theologians, biblical scholars, and writers, reformers, they talked about the importance of self-knowledge. Before there was ever a Freud saying things like this, as one reformer wrote, he says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, and this is in the 1500s, five centuries ago, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Knowledge of God, knowledge of our, it all boils down to these two parts of knowledge that we can't really know ourselves apart from knowing God, and we can't know God apart from knowing ourselves. Those two are inextricably linked, and in understanding the one, we understand the other. Again, five centuries before there was ever a modern psychology, talking about the importance of knowing who you are. And if you don't buy the reformers, well, let me just say that it's a deeply divine self-image. That God himself in the scripture has a self-image, and his name is Jesus. He is the exact image of the invisible God. So when God sees his son, he sees himself. That's exactly what the New Testament authors say. He is the self-image of the Father himself. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. He is the self-image of, of God. So it, it is deeply biblical. It's, it's deeply theological. It's, it's deeply personal. The question for everyone here, including myself, is how do we formulate an answer to the question, who am I? On what basis do we come to a conclusion, this is who I am? Now, before we get to the scripture, let me just throw up here a couple of ways in which or bases upon which people tend to build or construct their identity or who they are. Now, it may not look like it, but those are supposed to be eyeballs looking down, okay? <laughs> How you see yourself. A lot of what oftentimes people will believe about themselves are shaped by or formed by what others say. Mother, father, friends, people, society. 
And listening to those voices, we form an image or we form an identity of who we are. Now, some of those things are good. It's good to have people reflecting on who we are. But is that an accurate basis upon which to shape your own understanding of yourself, of who you are? You're more, I want to tell you, than what people say you are. Others, maybe our um, identity or who we are is based upon our gender. I'm a guy or, or I'm a girl. Um, sexuality in our culture, as you know, has become a real defining point for one's or um, defining who one is, one's sexual orientation. Or ethnicity, I'm German or I'm Jewish or I'm, I'm Filipino. Maybe that's who I am. Uh, or over on the far right, well, I'm a musician or a painter. I'm talented. I have skills. I'm a teacher, I'm, a, I'm an artist, I'm an electrician, I, I am those things. That's, that's, that's how I see myself as an artist or an, or an electrician. Or a personality type, I'm introverted or I'm extroverted, I'm, I'm a phlegmatic or I'm sanguine. Let me just say that all those things in some respect are true of us. And all of those things at some level make us who we are. But we are more than those things. And that is not core to our identity. It's not core to who we are. You know, I was thinking in my head, because I, I reason out kind of the difference between like a talent, which is an expression of who we are, versus who we are. And they are different. Uh, if someone came up to me, and let's just say I happen to be really good at something, um, tennis. I'm not good at tennis. I'm not good at golf either. Um, and and, they, and they, they got up close to me, and they wanted to go out to coffee with me, and wanted to go to lunch with me, and spend time with my family. And I stopped, and I said, hey, what, like, what, why do you want to spend so much time with me? Why do you love me? Why, why spend all this time? And they responded, well, you know what? What I love about you most, I really love the fact that you play tennis well. How would you feel if someone said, man, what I love about you is you're an electrician? You'd go, that's not who I am. That's what I do. I don't want you to love me for my talent, because that's not necessarily me. You see, there's a difference. It's bigger and deeper than simply a, a talent or a personality type. It's, it's something core um, that really does define us that's bigger than any of those things. The question is, what is it? How should we see ourselves, not according to what people say or by our gender or ethnicity? And again, all of those things are gifts to us and an extension of who we are. But what itself does God say we are? How does he see us? And um, specifically through the scripture. Because every other voice out there is fallible. But Christians have believed, and Jews before Christians back in ancient times believed, this is the infallible source of knowledge. And therefore, if I really want to understand who I am, I need to listen to this voice. What does it say about me, who I am, who we are? And so what I want to do with the remaining time is I want to... Um, draw your attention to three um, biblical lenses. Think of them as, you know, these three different, like, eyeballs facing down. Three biblical lenses, primary lenses by which God sees us and how we should see us and understand better who we are. The lens of creation, the lens of corruption, and the lens of Christ. The lens of creation, corruption, and Christ. Beginning with creation. Now, I'm going to do something a bit different than I normally do. Normally, I, I stick with one text, and I am, instead of sticking with one text, I'm going to take you to 
a number of texts, primarily, however, in the opening pages of the Bible, the beginning, the primal um, chapters that define who we are. Genesis 1 talks about our creation. It says significant things about who we are. Chapter 1, verse 26. And what he says about us here is different from every other created thing. It's what makes us unique and which gives us value and meaning. Um, Moses, writing, said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Again, image. Talk about self-image. This is God's image in us. After our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. So God created. Now, first he, he was purposing, now he's doing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The distinctiveness of what it means to be human at the very beginning is that we bear, we reflect the image of the invisible, almighty, beautiful, astounding, loving, joyful, ever-powerful God. Uh, there's no way of, of fully imagining what exactly that means in terms of what we once looked like and who we were created to be. But the sense of it is that we were created to be lofty beings of nobility and glory and majesty. I have, at different points, meditated on, on Psalm 8, um, which is a psalm that was written in reflection upon this, where King David wrote, he said, um, that he, that is the Lord, made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. A little bit lower than the heavenly celestial beings. And the word translated heavenly beings or celestial beings is actually the word Elohim, which in other places in the Old Testament, Hebrew, is a name for God. So one could, if one could find enough evidence for this translation, one could translate Psalm 8, verse 5, as he made man a little lower than God himself. I'm not arguing for that translation, but what I am saying is that there is such a loftiness and magnificence to who God created us to be as image bearers of, him, of his glory. Which means at least three things. Like, what does it mean to bear the image of the invisible God? Well, it means at least three things. It means we reflect him. We were given the capacity to radiate and reflect the magnificence of his character, his creativity, his love, his joy, his peace, all of those things that mark out the glory of God. We were created to reflect beautiful, astoundingly beautiful creatures. Reflect as well as represent. You notice in this passage that God gives dominion to Adam, to the first man. That is, Adam is intended to be God's representative on earth, a little replica of God himself to rule over nature in a benevolent, loving, and good way. So we reflect, we represent, and thirdly, we're capable of relating. In order to relate to somebody in deep, rich, powerful ways, there must be likeness. I don't know if you've ever tried, but it's really hard to warm up and have a relationship, a meaningful one, with a grasshopper. <laughs> or a lizard, or even a giraffe. Just, there's no likeness. We don't speak the langu same language. We don't bark like a dog. We don't mow like a cat. Likeness is necessary for fullness of, of experience 
experience of relationship and love and mutual um, reciprocal giving and receiving it as his likeness. And just think, like God made us so much like himself that we could relate to him in rich and full and powerful, joy-filled ways. Like that's, that's who we were created to be, which means we were created to find our fullness of who we really are in relationship to God. Where there's no relationship, we lose who we are. Where we are united to him in love and, you know, then we discover who we are. That's what we were made for, to relate, to reflect and represent and relate to him in full and rich ways. It's like like puzzle piece. You know, you spend Christmas putting together a big puzzle and you're just looking for that one piece that fits, fits, fits. Tried a whole bunch and this doesn't fit. And then you come to that one, and you're just like, oh, that fits. We were meant to fit there with the Lord, which is why many of us feel so lost, because something happened. Before we get there, I just because that sounds kind of academic, I want you to look at how it affects um, the experiential life. Like, You'll notice in chapter 2 when it talks about the first man and first woman, the text takes the time to say that they were both naked. They were both in the buff. They were both buck naked, right? And they were not ashamed. Now, I'm going to say and use the word naked, probably feel a little bit awkward at points, but I, wanna, I want you to get at the sense of what's being conveyed. The, the, God didn't make Adam and Eve without clothes because the weather was tropical, because they were on a beach in Cancun. They, he, that's, that, that's, that's not why he made them without. He didn't make them without clothes, so they discover the need for a fashion industry. Um, that's, 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 that's not what it was. It says that they were naked and they were unashamed. You know, one of the most vulnerable things one can possibly do is be completely disclosed. That's why, to me, the whole idea of nudist colony is ridiculous. But it's just like, you put yourself out there, you're completely vulnerable to the judgments and thoughts or the depraved desires of others. Imagine being in a place where there was no vulnerability. There was complete acceptance. um, Complete freedom. Complete trust. Complete disclosure. There's no filters There's no need for covering anything emotionally, spiritually, or physically. Complete disclosure. No self-consciousness. I wonder how I look. God, how do I look? Pretty good? No, not so well. I can't imagine a world like that. We walk into a room, and one of the first things we think of, I wonder what that guy thinks of me, right? You're wondering if your hair's right. I mean, think about how much time you spent this morning just getting ready to come here so people will look at you a certain way. I I venture to say 99.9% of you looked in the mirror at least once. You brushed your teeth because you probably had stinky breath this morning. I did. I hadn't brushed my teeth. You look in your, make sure the hair is straight or your hair is shaved. Um, Make sure the whiskers are down. Then you put on deodorant because if you don't put it on, you're going to stink. And then you put on cologne because you stink. And you know what I mean? I just said, then you're going to, I got to get clothes. Are my clothes in, in style, out of style? Do they match? Which is something I need help with from time to time. Do the shoes fit? And then you get everybody in the, oh, let's not forget the zit that you had to cover up or you had to treat with proactive. And then those of you, not me, uh, you know, rich enough to Botox your uh, wrinkles. I, you know what I mean? All this stuff goes into 
preparing ourselves to be out in public so as to avoid shame. So self-conscious. Imagine a world where that doesn't exist. Adam was created with nothing on because he was in a place of complete security. He was not self-conscious. He was completely free to, to be unfiltered with his wife and the Lord. The Lord disclosing himself to Adam, spoke with him, listened to him, walked with him in the garden, and with his wife, it's, it's absolute freedom. I think that's what's conveyed in the whole idea of nakedness without shame. Complete, absolute, unfiltered freedom of love, trust, and security. That doesn't exist on planet Earth right now. We're all fearful of what people think of us. Well, that was the original state. That's the, that was the lens. You were created as a majestic creature, as an image bearer of the invisible God. That makes your life um, so valuable. That's why, from the Christian vantage point, human life is so, so important. Because we still, even in our fallen condition, reflect the image of God, which is, explains why people can still do great things. You know that that, that, that first lens, you created in the image of God, um, in the perfected sense, didn't last very long. Um, you knew that Adam and Eve, they took the fruit. Sometimes people say, well, what's the big deal? Like, they took fruit. Like, really? Like, a whole human, humanity has got to perish because of a sinful piece of fruit? Like, what? isn't that like overcompensating justice for one infraction? I mean, let me offer the horror of that act in a slightly different way. When Adam and Eve reached across that boundary line, to take the forbidden fruit. They were deceived to believe that there was something more than the fullness of that divine and human disclosure and fellowship than God had given them. It's as if, and I think this is probably true, God placed the one prohibition in the garden to simply test whether or not they believed that God was enough. Do you believe that I'm enough? You and me, no filters, together, do you believe I'm enough? And the moment that they, they, they reached past the boundary marker, they were in effect saying to, to God who had given them everything, including his own image, you're not enough for me. I need something else, something beyond, something in many respects better than I already have. You know what that's, that's like, that, that equates to by, by saying, I, you're not enough. That would be like saying to your wife, you're not enough for me. I need another woman. That is uh, an expression of divine adultery. And from that vantage point, you can understand uh, like the horror of that. Like all my infinite abounding in love and generosity, God who is dwelling with man in unfiltered fullness and freedom, man turns his back and away. That's what they did. And then from that moment, something happened inside that changed us all. There was the presence of this thing called guilt. And with the guilt, public shame. Guilt and shame. And from that point on, there is a, a different lens. 
that is the lens of, of sinner, nor guilty. And that applies to everyone on planet Earth. This lens exists of corrupt, guilty. There's a difference between um, objective and subjective guilt. Objective is that which really exists, and subjective is that which we feel in our soul. Objective guilt is the fact that there was a crime committed against God, and let's just call it an act of divine adultery. Now, that objective guilt is a reality whether you feel it or not. There are guys in, in the penitentiary and in prison right now who are guilty categorically, but they don't feel guilty. That doesn't mean they're not guilty. That when we fell, that is when Adam sinned and everyone after him has sinned in like manner, in thought or in heart or in deed, um, then we incurred objective guilt, whether we feel it or not. And it's on the basis of that objective guilt that we stand condemned before God for what we did, in the same way that a husband would be objectively guilty for committing adultery for his wife. I'm sorry, but that's just, boom. Subjective guilt is what we feel, that feeling of self-disgust, like how could I? Um, the feeling of, of shame that arises from it. And that, that sense of subjective guilt is a powerful force in life that oftentimes forces us to do things that are harmful and damaging and perpetuate sin. I know, um, example, young woman finds herself pregnant in high school and she's afraid of the shame. And so, feeling guilty and feeling afraid of the shame, she compounds her guilt by terminating the life of her child, unborn child. Now, there's compounded guilt and there's also loss of life involved, which then drags this person down into an alcohol lifestyle and multiple attempts on one her life that's guilt that's how it twists that's how it compounds itself and other people are affected it's very real and I don't think I have to convince you of that you know what it's like to feel guilty look at the effects the effects described in Genesis 2 are so true of every one of us their eyes were open that as they saw it for what it was. Now they knew they were naked. Not just naked, but they saw their guilt. Naked in this particular context is they saw their guilt. They felt their guilt. By the way, um, just as a side note, you know the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Some people think that that's an intellectual knowledge. Like as soon as they eat the fruit, now they can discern between, intellectually discern between good and evil. But that's not what happened. They didn't just get an intellectual knowledge of good and evil they actually became evil. It's like the difference between saying that I know about cancer intellectually versus now I have it. It's like, it's not just knowing evil, it's actually being contaminated by evil. And they felt it. And now they turn their eyes inwards, they see we're naked, we're guilty, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, instead of that unfiltered, free, completely disclosed before the Lord, they find themselves running from him. They hid themselves in the, from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, um, God called to the man and said, here's the Lord seeking out. I mean, 
This is the story of God all through the Bible, seeking out. Where are you? And it's not that he didn't know where they were. It's like, I can't see you. Hide and go seek. It's just that's, the Lord knew where they were. They needed to come out. They needed to, 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 um, to be the ones to respond. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Oh, man, this is, uh, I mean, written, what, 3,000 years ago? And it's such an accurate psychological description of what we do. We hide, we run, we keep secrets, and we feel fear, fear of shame. That's our world. Uh, spinning stories to make negative things look positive. That's, that's, that's who we are. In, instead of that full disclosure and freedom, unfiltered, now there's hide, hiding, there's defensiveness, there's blaming, there's deference of guilt. It's, it's all going downhill. It's all very self-oriented, self-preserving, self-hiding. That's a picture of humanity under the lens of corruption or sin. I know that we abstract that word sin. Some people don't even like the word anymore because it sounds so old-fashioned. You know, um, there is no such thing in this life as absolute transparency with each other. You know that? All of us in here are hiding stuff. If you don't think so, let me ask you, how do you think your marriage would go if your wife could read your mind? Or your husband could read your mind, a wife. I mean, when your wife asks you the question, she looks at you and she says, Honey, do I look fat? And normally you'd say, Oh, of course not. But she can read your mind. Now you're screwed. <laughs> just I hear the truth. Of course, that's a humorous example, but... Just imagine, if we could see into each other's minds and we could see the thoughts of, of judgmental spirits, that we could actually hear what we, others think of us, that we, we could see the lust and the fantasies and we could, we could see the evil in men's and women's minds, the lies and the half-truths. I can tell you, probably, we, we would probably have no friends. And I guarantee you, no one would be married. That means there's a lot of stuff hidden behind the cranial walls of our head that we hide. There's no such thing as absolute transparency in this life. I don't think we could handle it. Everybody hides. It just goes to show, it's an evidence that something's jacked. We've fallen so far. That's, that's the lens of condemnation. Now, God doesn't show us that lens. He doesn't pull it out in the Bible to harm us or send us into a pit of despond. He brings out that lens so that we'll see ourselves as we really are before him and we will run to him and grace. And mind you, before we can ever get to lens three, which is I'm about to hit, one has to come to grips with and accept the conclusions of lens number two. That is with the Lord, there's, there has to be absolute transparency. It's coming before the Lord and, and, and without justification, without deferring blame, without justifying, without 
um, hiding, because he sees it anyway. He saw Adam and Eve hiding behind the rock. He sees every piece of your thought life and heart. He knows what's on the hard drive at home, men. And I bet you're afraid of shame right now, me simply saying that. Yeah, there's stuff on there I don't want people to see because I'd be ashamed. I'm hiding. You have to come before the Lord. Lens number two. And simply allow him to strip you bare. To be able to say, Lord, this is all of my pardon, the non-French. This is all my crap. All of it. And I own it. Am I, am I, am I a person who thinks lies and sometimes speaks lies? Yes. Am I a person who lusts? Yes. Am I a person who is not content with what you've given to me? Yes. Do I think that there's something more than you and you're not enough? Yes. And to be laid bare and say it's true. That, my friends, is the joyful freedom of repentance. It's true! What you say is the lens is true, what it shines on you. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He doesn't want us to construct some alternative identity based upon, well, I have a good career and I'm doing this good thing and that good performance and I have these talents and I'm putting them all together and this is my life and it looks pretty good from your vantage point, right? And the Lord's like, that's a house of cards. It's just boom, I don't want to see that stuff. That's just a, most of our identity, which is built on created things, is nothing more than a form of hiding. Other than just, it's who I am, Lord. And I'm coming out of the dark, out of the secrets, out of the hiding place, and I'm just fully and completely exposed before you. Here I am. That's repentance. And it's the key to freedom. And it's the precursor to new life. And it's the condition upon which we can see ourselves in the new lens, the third lens. And that is the lens of Christ. You know the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. If you were to define the heart of God, it would be this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding. The only word that has the adjective abounding in front of it, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving sin and transgression and iniquity. That's his heart. And he can leave us in the state underneath that lens. And then he'd obliterate us because what we look like is actually hideous to him. It's offensive because it's a sign, a remembrance of adultery. Divine spiritual adultery. But he's got a heart of mercy and forgiveness. And so what does he do? He sends his son. Mind you, his son is the image of God. The self-image of God, like I said. And we're told in the New Testament, in particular, John chapter 1, that the son, Jesus, has had, and the only person to have full and complete disclosure of the father to him and him to the father. They shared one another's glory in their triune relationship. The Father is the only one who fully, excuse me, the Son is the only one who fully knows the Father and can make him known to us. Complete self-disclosure, mutually between Father and Son. And Jesus came as the Son, 
as the perfect man to do what Adam could not do, to be the perfect and greater second Adam. I mean, think about it. Put the two side by side. Adam reached for more than God and gave up God. He reached for more than God and gave up God. Jesus didn't reach for anything. Rather, he gave up everything for the sake of God. The polar opposite. One reaches beyond God and loses God, and Jesus lost and gave up everything willingly for the sake of his Father, for the sake of God. He is the essence of what it means to be perfectly and beautifully human. Perfectly and beautifully human. He is the God-man, but he is the perfect human willing to give up everything for the sake of his Father. That made him not only perfect, it made him the worthy and perfect sacrifice for us. It's, it's interesting that, you know, Jesus came so that, you know, that second lens, the sins of corru- lens of corruption um, that was rightfully placed on us. He took that lens of corruption, that lens of sin, and he, he placed it over his son. And... Instead of looking at his son as the most beautiful and righteous and perfect person in the moments of the cross, he looked down and he saw all of sin put upon him and what he saw he hated and what he hated he judged and what he judged he poured out his wrath on. That is, Jesus took that lens and the punishment of that lens for our sake. Which means the guilt, that objective guilt is now gone. There's no more Um, conviction verdict in the mind and heart of God. It's gone because he's taken it. But on the other hand, something else wonderfully happened. Because as I told you, Jesus is the perfect, beautiful, righteous, amazing son. Like God looks at his son, apart from the lens of sin, and and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I I love this guy. And the heart of the Father explodes with joy and and love over over Jesus because he is so perfect. He is so gracious. He is so loving and so sacrificial. Just nothing less than awesome. The Father is in love with the Son. That's how he sees Jesus. That's how the Father sees Jesus. And what's amazing is God takes that lens of how he sees Jesus and he says, now I see you this way. That's awesome. He can actually say, man, these guys are beautiful. They're wonderful. They're awesome. I I, I explode with joy over seeing my, my sons and my daughters. Why? Because he chose to see us through the lens of Christ. That's astounding. That's how God sees us. Sin transferred to Jesus and righteousness and beauty transferred to us because of what he did. And that's how he sees us. That's how he sees us. Or to put scripture text to it, three. One, I just want to remind you that he did endure not just the suffering of the cross, but shame. Shame is, is that feeling of disgust that we feel because others see our disgust. Shame. We often um, miss the details in the New Testament text that tell us that Jesus was stripped. The Romans, when they wanted to crucify somebody, they wanted maximum shame. And so they stripped them bare. There was nothing. That was the custom of Roman crucifixion. So all the pictures with Jesus with a loincloth are wrong. 
they gambled for his clothes. We in our sin hide our shame. And Jesus willingly allowed himself to be stripped bare for all this world. Taking public worldly shame upon himself for me and you. That's pretty amazing. Um, the double lens. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, that is God, made him, Jesus, Father, made the Son to be sin. He made the perfect man to be sin who knew no sin in our place. So that, here's the positive lens, we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. So, so that's how God sees us, the righteousness of God. He sees us through a lens. I just want to say to you this morning that if you're a believer, the Lord explodes in joy over you because he sees you through the lens of Christ. He doesn't see you through the lens of sin any longer. By the way, that does not mean that we do not continue to be transparent before the Lord with our sin. It doesn't mean we don't forget our sin. Um, we are to remember our sin for the sake of humility and for the sake of, of magnifying the grace of God by running to the cross. That sin lens is not the defining lens for us anymore. Rather, the lens of Christ is. So that we, coming back to self-image, what do you believe about who you are? Are you the conclusion or the final product of a construction of talent and personality and achievement? Or, or on the flip side of all of your failures, and that's how you measure who you are, all your failures and your your mistakes and your shortcomings. It's like all of that aside, the Lord wants us to see and believe of ourselves that we are new creations. He's given us new hearts. He's already taken away our sin. He's taken away our shame. The old is past and behold, the new has come. And I see myself as that. You have not just the privilege. It is the mandate of God for you to see yourself this way and for me to see myself this way. Justified, forgiven, fully righteous, a brand new creature against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's an altogether different kind of self-identity and self-image. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you are a product of either your mistakes or your successes, and that's who you really are? Because if you believe that, then you're still living in slavery. But to believe. Remember that quote? I said, remember the very end. I hope I get to it. Well, I'm coming back to it. Where he says, a man will generally live up to his self-image. And if the image you have is the biblical one of a Christ lens... That I am a child of God. I am a new creation. Then the sense is that you will begin to live up to that self-image. Who I am in Christ. And that is a truth to believe and grow in. And as we grow in that truth, this is what ha begins to happen. We begin to be more transparent. More honest. More joyful. You don't want to hide anymore. 
we become more free, more confident, and more loving because we know who we are. So listen. There are people in this room right now who are still in darkness and still hiding as you feel it, living in the secret side in fear. Well, I would encourage you to allow that second lens to open up on you and just be transparent before the Lord and then in faith call out and say, I want the righteousness of your son. I want what he has to give. If you're a believer in here and you've allowed yourself to be identified by either your failures or your successes or your talents, it's time to just let that go and recognize you need to build your, or should I say the Holy Spirit, to build um, your identity and who you are on the solid rock of Christ Jesus and how God sees you because of what he's done at the cross. I pray that this will just take hold of your hearts. This is the truth. And it all boils down to that quote, really, at the beginning of the message. That at the end of the day, what we have to believe, hold on to about who we are, is that our identity rests firmly and gladly on one fact. And that is we are our father's sons through Jesus Christ. Period. Father, we come before you and ask that your Holy Spirit allows us to saturate our minds and hearts in this truth and to allow what you have said of us at the beginning, in the middle, and now through Christ to become a reality in our, our lives. And that we would embrace it, live it, love it, rejoice in it. Even now, Lord, in this congregation, as I'm praying, Lord, I know that there are some who feel like they're behind the walls of, of shame. And I just pray this morning would be a morning of liberation. May they have the heart to come before you in open honesty, saying, All right, Lord, perhaps you need to move them to, to confess this to a close friend as well. I pray that that would happen this morning. You grant us courage and faith. For those who are finding their security in other things other than the simple fact that we are yours, I pray that we would lay those things down and just rejoice in the simple fact that we are who we are because we are our fathers, sons, and daughters. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us light by which to see ourselves in Christ's name.